A warning for our listeners, we're talking about gun violence this week, specifically the mass shooting in Farmington. We know some might not want kids to be listening to an episode like this, so just a warning that listener discretion is advised. And we are following breaking news today. At least three people are dead after a shooting in Farmington. Two officers were injured. Let's get... It's news no one wants to hear, and it seems like, unfortunately, we're hearing about these types of situations more often these days. Like a handful of other communities in New Mexico, Farmington in the northwest corner of the state is now the latest to deal with a response in the aftermath of a mass shooting. Just over two weeks ago on May 15th, a teenage gunman started firing shots from the front yard of his family member's home. The shooting started around 10.56 in the morning. Within about eight minutes, police had confronted and stopped the shooter, killing him in front of a church. In the end, at least nine people were shot. Three of them died, all of whom were elderly women in their 70s and 90s. This week on the podcast, we're talking about what happened in Farmington with a key voice who helped lay out the facts of what happened and the story behind how officers ended what they've called a random assault in the middle of a neighborhood. Welcome to the New Mexico News Podcast, headlines and stories from the land of enchantment. Brought to you by KRQE. Here's Chris McKee and Gabrielle Burkhart. Steve Hebby has led the Farmington Police Department for just over nine years now, having joined the agency in March 2014. Unlike a lot of lawmen in New Mexico, he hasn't spent his entire career here. Coming previously from prior roles in Anchorage, Alaska, where he worked for over two decades, Two weeks ago, Chief Hebby spent day after day walking the public through what happened in Farmington. And today he joins us remotely. Chief, thanks for taking some time to chat with us today. We appreciate it. Sure, absolutely. I appreciate the chance. Well, thank you. And and as we understand, when this news of the mass shooting broke out, uh, you were out of state is what it sounded like. Nowhere near Farmington, actually, but in Wisconsin for, as I understand, a, a family function that had been planned probably some time well prior to what took place. So if you could maybe tell us about that morning from your perspective, you're in another state, uh, where exactly were you? What did you hear initially and, and how did you respond to it? So I, I had been in Pennsylvania my wife's brother was getting married there. And, uh, and then we started driving back. Uh, my dad still lives in Wisconsin. So it's only there and I was going to see him for, for a day or so. Uh, we just sat down to lunch in Wisconsin it was a nice day. I haven't seen him for a while. So it was, it started off nice. And, and then the phone calls came uh, that we had an active shooter and we believed it was still in the process at that time. 911, what is the address of the emergency? Uh, you, Dan, Dustin, somebody is just running off a whole lot of fire. They're shooting all over the place. I don't know what's going on, but it sounds like there's gunfire or something going on on uh, Dustin somewhere right around me. I'm on the corner of you. But it sounds like they could have killed. They, they probably shot 300 rounds, and I'm not kidding. 212 East Navajo Street. There's somebody shooting up the world out here. We thought that we had put one suspect down, uh, but that we had another suspect probably still on the loose. Sounds like maybe two different guns, maybe three. Okay. Probably 30 rounds so far. It was coming from the houses, but it sounded like people were shooting, like it was multiple people. And I got out of there because I obviously shots were being fired. Those are very hard. 
when you're a long way away, you know, it's, it's hard anyway as a chief because you don't have a lot of control of what's going on. But when you're a long way away and you're just dependent on a phone link to try and uh, get through and, and understand what's going on, it was it was very difficult. Um, we, you know, I finished up with my dad, uh, went back to the place we were staying in, um, and it immediately began conference calls with my staff as we tried to sort through what are the facts, what do we know, what, what do we think might still be going on. And I was going to ask, you know, was that something that you felt essentially from that moment that you heard of this happening to traveling all the way back? As I understood, you drove back. Um, did you find yourself pretty much on the phone the whole time trying to talk your team through this stuff? Yeah, that, I mean, that's an excellent description of it. Yeah. Uh, so it's like a 22 hour drive um, and we made it in about 25 and a half. My wife did just yeoman work. Uh, we slept in a truck stop for about three hours. While we were going, the way really I was able to keep going was we were on the phone constantly uh, with somebody, you know, usually my staff uh, twice in the morning. Then we did the, on Tuesday, we did the first of the briefings uh, at two o'clock. So we were getting ready as a staff for what that was going to look like as the deputy chiefs did that. But it was, it was a long drive and I was very happy when we got back in town. I felt like, um, you know, I could start getting schooled up a little bit better and, and, and be a little more valuable. I have eyes on the suspect. He's walking south. He's wearing all black, skinny. He's in front of the Methodist Church, walking southbound on Dustin. We've now seen some of the video from that day. Your agency, Farmington Police, released doorbell camera footage and some officer body camera video of that initial shooting in response. The whole thing took place in a mostly residential neighborhood that also has several churches. The crime scene stretched nearly a quarter of a mile. It was chaos. And as someone, you know, just watching that footage back, it gave us and the public just a small glimpse of how terrifying this all was. And this is honestly among my worst nightmares, a gunman opening fire at people randomly Chief, we know some of the initial police response included officers either running or driving toward live gunfire. Give me another unit to Dustin and Apache. Dustin and Navajo. Right here. Follow me. Right up here by the White House. White House on the West East side. And we know this is something that departments trained for, but I think it's also another thing to put into action, knowing that you could be shot or killed. And you spoke of how proud you were of those officers' calm demeanor. You know, I really think you, you come away seeing the incredible bravery of, of people that are, are devoted to trying to keep their community safe, uh, even in the midst of, of just an unspeakable tragedy for us. How did your officers respond that day and what was the response like? You know, I think dispatch was just buried with calls. Um, when that started. And then those calls started to spill over because they were so tied up. Then people are getting busy signals. So they started calling the police department directly. They're getting our records division. Um, so you, you, you know, that kind of gives you the picture of there was, there was panic in the community. Did you get a look at the person that was doing this? There's a guy down out on Dustin street, right next to my house. They're still shooting. What's he look like? I can't tell. I took a quick look, but bullets are going everywhere. I... Hold on just a moment while I talk on the radio. Don't hang up. 
Let you low, keep everyone down. Huh? And keep yourself low and keep everyone down and stand in the house, okay? Please hurry. They are still shooting. I can hear it. I've heard at least 50 rounds here. And there was a desperation to get somebody uh, to the scene. So the first officer that shows up um, is approached, you know, he's directed in by a citizen. Another citizen is meeting him there as he's starting to walk the scene, pointing out where the suspect is, has walked off to. He can kind of see the suspect and starts vectoring other officers in towards that area. But it's it's a very chaotic scene. And, and at one point then he hears more gunfire and he starts running towards it. But when he first gets there, he's, he sees the, the bodies of the three the first three victims. Um, and so he knows it is ultra serious. This isn't just, you know, we're hearing reports of shots fired. I mean, there are people down and, and, mm-hmm. and not just one. Um, and then he hears the fire continuing. And so, you know, I, I was, I was very proud of, of the response of the officers because that is, that is the worst nightmare for everybody. Right. You know, uh, um, and it's, and it's go time now, you know, you're, so he runs down the street, he gets the, the other officers as they get out of their cars and they immediately deploy and begin moving aggressively uh, towards the suspect to try and end this. So it, it is, we do train a lot on it. We do talk a lot about it. Of course, you know, we spend a lot of time talking about not using force, de-escalating and, and all of those things. But but really, at, at its ultimate moment, there's times when you're going to have to, and, and this was definitely one of them. And when the suspect opens fire at first on, on the officer, and you see the one officer kind of falls to the ground, then he gets back up and he's talking to his, his other officers that he's okay, and they start laying down fire on the suspect. And then our other officer gets shot. Um, it, it's just, it is total chaos. And you you train aggressively, but you can't train for all of that. Uh, you know, and uh, so I was just very proud of the response. And, you know, I'm, I'm deeply sorry that we lost three citizens in this. I, I, I very much am. Um, and so it's hard to say, you know, I'm so proud of the response. We lost three citizens, you know, which is just terrible. Um, but but at the chance, the first chance we really had to end this thing, the officers did a great job and they did end it. It was remarkable to me watching that video. And I think you, you spoke a little bit to this in the news conference, you know, uh, the communication that those officers had, because obviously I think as you spoke to, there's so many 911 calls coming in, people are reporting what they think they're seeing sometimes, what they've seen, and you kind of just go with it and hope that, you know, what you're operating off of in your mind is um, you know, accurate. And, and obviously I think in that space, there is the room for a lot of confusion, whether it be friendly fire, whether it be misinformation that officers receive and they walk into a trap, it it could be a whole heck of a lot of different things. And, um, you watch that video and it seemingly the communication was as clear as it could have been, it seems in a span of seconds. You know, the confusion from the public was right down to, you heard the one guy say uh, to, to the officer that he has an automatic weapon, right? And that was because the suspect's fire made him think it was, and it, and it really was just the rapid fire of, of the, the weapon. And then 
And then when he transitions to the pistols, none of them were automatic. Um, there was also the belief among some of the callers that there was a second shooter because they heard the volume of fire and they couldn't believe it was really coming from one guy. Um, so all of that leads to that confusion. And, you know, just like in your job and in, in any job, the, the more pressure and the less time you have, the more possible it is to really screw something up. And like you said, uh, Chris, the, the communication between the officers in, in a pivotal high stress moment really kept that from happening. They, they really did communicate well. They, there wasn't a lot of misinterpretation. As soon as the officer uh, sees that the suspect's down, it cease fire, you know, suspect down. We start moving in, we put handcuffs on him, we, we begin CPR on the suspect. Um, so really the response was uh, as good as you could expect under that kind of high pressure with so much unknown. Here comes right here. Cuff him. Here we go. 428. Subject is down. He is secured. We need 55, 1018. Officer down. I wanted to talk a little bit more about who was lost here in this case. Um, in eight minutes, as we understand it, from that initial 911 call to the shooter then being confronted and killed by responding officers. In that time, nine people were shot. Three of them were killed. Um, they were Shirley Voita, along with a mother and daughter, Melody Ivy, Gwendolyn Schofield, who had stopped in a vehicle, it sounds like, from what you were telling the, the news media, to check in all likelihood to see how Shirley was because she had fallen out of her car, essentially, after being shot driving through the neighborhood. But to ask you about these women who were killed in this, it sounds like they were all you know, pillars of the community, the the fabric of, of why, why people say, oh, that town is so nice. It's really yeah. what it seemed like those three people were. And, and I'm wondering if you might be able to just tell us a little bit more about these victims and, you know, what have you learned about them or if you knew them personally at all? You know, I did not know them personally, um, but I've not heard a single bad thing about them. Uh, they were like you're describing, Chris, they, they were people that they were teachers and uh, Gwendolyn worked in the DWI treatment facility and, you know, to help people. News 13's Natalie Waters spoke with relatives and friends. Jessica, everyone I spoke with today tell me these three women were pillars in their churches and their communities. They say their untimely deaths are being felt by many, including State Representative Mark Duncan. He says his own daughters and even some of his grandchildren went to Melody Ivy's preschool, which Duncan says she ran for 40 years. They all were contributors throughout their lives to our community and had big families that were that had gone out and, and were doing all sorts of different things in our community. Um, so, you know, any any three people that would get killed would be terrible. Um, these three were like you're saying, they're just salt of the earth people that you really you look at a, a small town and we're a smaller town for sure. And these would be just some of the best people. It'd be why you live in a small town that you have folks like this around. Um, so it, it was uh, just an unbelievable event that, that we'd lose all three of them. Yeah, I heard Melody also ran a, a preschool or and had taught thousands of Farmington students over the years, which was just remarkable. One thing that stuck with me was one of her family members, you know, just saying she would have likely been the first to wrap her arms around that young man. She's probably the first one. 
put her arms around that young man. Yeah, I, I think that's true. You know, you can see um, in, in that first ring video, you can see that uh, Shirley's car coming towards you with the driver door open and nobody's in the car. It's just rolling. She's already out of the car laying in the street. And then you see the blue van um, coming down uh, and and they pull over to the side. That That's why we we believe that they were going to get out and render assistance because it doesn't just you know start to swing out and around. You know, they actually are pulling over to the curb. They're going to stop and get out to see what's going on. You know, this, this lady is injured. They don't know how bad or why, um, and they never get a chance to find out. So, um, really, their their final moments, they were still looking at, at something going on, and they weren't just going to drive by it. They were going to try and help. Mm-hmm. Two officers were also injured in this shooting, Farmington Police Sergeant Rachel Desenza and New Mexico State Police Officer Andreas Stamatiadis. We definitely get a sense that Farmington is a tight-knit community. It's in the northwest part of New Mexico with a population less than 50,000. How big is the Farmington Police Department? So we have, we're authorized 135 officers sworn. And, uh, you know, our department, including civilians, about 179. Okay. And and what has the community response been like since May 15th? You know, it's this this area is really always pretty supportive of the police. Um, we've had a very good relationship with the community throughout my tenure here. But this week has been, you know, I think more emotional for everyone, more emotional for me. We had a community vigil, community healing uh, event because it was police week last week. And so we had a police memorial event scheduled previously a couple of months ago. We, we've run it every year I've been here. This would have been our, our 10th time. And we converted it from a police memorial event to a, to a community healing event. Uh, and it was very well attended. You had, you had hundreds turn out uh, from here for this. And the, the community support at the, because it was also high school graduation week. Um, so I, I went out to a couple of the graduation ceremonies and, you know, the the citizens are very appreciative of the officers and the department right now. And, uh, you know, it, it was an emotional, difficult week, but the support of the community, I think, has really helped the officers um, as they're processing. This is the second officer we've had shot in the last 18 months. Previous to that, it had been maybe three decades uh, that we had not had an officer shot. And so as you're looking at a time where it's difficult to get people to be police officers, difficult to get them to stay in policing, and then you have two get shot in 18 months, you know, that, that can have a profound impact on people's desire to continue or families desire to have them continue. But I think the reaction of the community has been such an outpouring of support for the department that people do feel like, although it's dangerous and although uh, Sergeant Desenzo was shot, um, we, we needed to be there. We needed to close that gap and end that. And I think officers understand that's, that's part of what they've signed up for. You mentioned in one of the last press briefings that this suspect who was named here in the shooting, an 18-year-old named Bo Wilson, that he had fired more than 140 rounds from the front yard of essentially his father's home from an AR-15 rifle, then grabbed a 9mm and a 22 caliber pistol um, and walked down the street shooting essentially at anyone that passed by in, again, this, this neighborhood from what we understand, he and his family owned the guns that were used in the crime. And as you had also revealed, I believe that there were at least 10 other firearms it sounded like that Mr. Wilson there had access to. One of the big questions I think that comes out of all of these situations is trying to answer the why. 
Have you come any closer to figuring out the motivations for this 18-year-old suspect to Farmington High School student, why he would do something like this? Are investigators any closer to an answer? You know, I mean, that's that's an excellent question and, and is really, I think, the big question that hangs out there for us. Um, and I wish that I believed I was going to be able to provide you an answer and, and one that was rational and, and we could all kind of understand it. But, you know, this one, even even less so than others, doesn't appear to have even a trigger. You know, where, where something happens, there's some blow up or something. And uh, not that we've been able to find. It appears there were ongoing mental health issues. Um, there was issues with uh, the wrestling team. You know, we're still running that down, but even that wasn't the day before, you know. You know uh, so to, to what you owed that trigger, I, I don't know that we're going to come up with that. I think more in, is the probability that what we'll see is an ongoing mental health problem that, you know, finally, whether it was the graduation coming up, whether it was the, the event with the, the wrestling, whether it was just life and what, what he had gone through and what was going on, something in the in the end just said, this is this is the day. And, you know, like I talked about, it's hard for me to to dissect, especially somebody who's in that spot. Um, it's hard for me to dissect what he was trying to accomplish that day. But, you know, the, the nearest I can see based on his actions is, you know, this was the final event of his life. He likely knew that that's what it was and was even kind of welcoming it, right? When he's yelling on the ring camera for us to come kill him, um, when he's discarded loaded weapons along the way, and, and in particular the AR, which had already done a significant amount of damage, all of the people killed by him were killed with the AR that he was firing. He discards a pistol that's still loaded. He takes off body armor that he equipped himself with and then stands and, and paces back and forth uh, in front of the church where we eventually encounter him. And, and then we have the final battle. So, you know, that as near as I can tell, this was his last stand this day and at that moment. And he was prepared to he was prepared to die. We've talked on this podcast about the different responses that come in the wake of a mass shooting. Unfortunately, you know, Chris and I have reported on a handful of them, even in our careers in New Mexico. There's community responses, investigations unfolding, and it also reignites or brings back to the forefront political discussions about gun control and mental health. From what you know now, I'm, I'm assuming, you know, investigators are combing through forensic digital evidence as well. Were there any red flags that when it comes to Wilson having access to weapons or having any sort of concerns for his mental state from either his family or school that have been revealed? So we're still looking and working with the school district to get those records and to see what, you know, what had been their experience with him. It didn't appear... And, and I say this just as a because I haven't seen the records, but it doesn't appear that there's a, a lot of the school district feeling so threatened that they're calling the police. Right. You know, so that hadn't happened. Um, all of the, the maybe lower level in, interactions, I think, will come out as we look through the records and we work at the school district. As far as the real red flags to authorities, you know, I don't think so. We, we just haven't seen it. Now, partially he's 18. So there isn't an extensive adult history, which would have which would have jumped up. We don't know a whole lot yet about his juvenile history, but I don't think it's considerable. Um, 
I think the family is the one reporting to us that they had concerns about his mental health, but you know, you've, you've got to get the family to, to feel like this could, this could end in something like this. And then they've got to call somebody outside of it. And, and that just didn't happen. I, I'm not saying that they weren't concerned because I think they were, uh, they may have even been taking some actions to try and help him, but I don't know that they understood what, what was possible, you know, uh, on the horizon. And so, you know, as far as what, what are the flags and the institutions, uh, I don't think there was any failed, um, you know, geez, we missed our chance. Um, I, I think it was known that there were issues, but it, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't known how severe those could wind up being. So you're not hearing at least from the family or any school, you know, personnel at this point, Oh, you know, I, I saw this coming or anything, anything of that sort. No, you know, I, I imagine there'll be some who, who will say things like that, but no, I don't have that. And I don't have anybody that felt so strongly about it before the incident that they were calling, you know, whether it was mental health facilities or, or us or the school and, and raising their hand and jumping up and down. I, I think there, there were probably concerns and we'll sort through those as we go, but it, it appears um, that, and, and maybe that's just human nature, right? I mean, family and close friends, you never think your, your person that's close to you is going to be a mass shooter. And, and just the digesting that for people can be a difficult thing to arrive at. And I don't think that they arrived at that before the incident. And we, we know that this is still under investigation. It's a pretty big crime scene to process as well. Is there more that you expect to learn in the coming days, weeks from the ongoing investigation? You know, I, I think we'll continue to learn about his preparations and, and how serious it was. There were a lot of guns. There was a lot of ammunition. He had things like a bulletproof vest and three guns. I don't know if we'll understand why only three. I don't know if we'll understand why he decided to roam off. You know, so after, why, why didn't he just make a stand there and, and wait? He actually is yelling, come kill me there. So I, I think I will wind up with a lot more questions than answers to some of this. But I do expect that we will learn something more about his preparations in coming days. And, you know, the, one of the big ones that I don't know that we'll have an answer for, um, but it's certainly one that haunts me is, you know, he easily could have gone to his school and and it wouldn't have been just a couple of people driving by. I mean, there would have been kids all around him, teachers, uh, school staff. Um, so why he didn't do that, I don't know. But boy, um, I would like to find out what, what was in his head that he didn't do that. And then I would say we were very, very lucky here in Farmington or this could have, could have really been uh, a slaughter. Graduation was the next day. Graduation was the next day. It feels like this is one of those cases where there's not an immediate maybe lesson learned about how something like this happens in the community, quite like we've seen with some of the other shooting events that have happened. You talked about just how effective the officers were in identifying the threat and and containing this situation. Obviously, there was some loss of life here. I guess I'm wondering as well, how does this sort of impact the department morale wise? You know, is there a, a sense of, of fear that, that is out there 
is a sense of loss. What are the feelings that maybe your officer and your department take away after something like this? I think, I think it's such a mixture, you know, I, I mean, uh, I don't know if it's outward, outright fear, but I, I know there's heightened concern when we've had a couple of officers shot, right? It's no longer just theoretical. Um, this, this has happened and not just once now it's happened twice. Um, so I, I think there's heightened concern from officers. Um, I think there's an increase in morale, uh, a, because here, here was their cohorts in this critical moment and they performed as well as could be expected and ended something that could have been so much worse, but they, they attacked and, and worked together as a team and, and ended something that, that could have been worse. I think there's uh, some confidence in our training that, uh, oh yeah, you know, the, the trainings we're doing and have been doing actually when you, when you are in those critical moments, we've trained it enough. You are falling back into that. You are doing the things that, that you should be doing. Um, and I think there's a sense of loss. You know, I don't, I didn't know the families, but some of my officers did and some of my command staff did. And, and so there is a sense of loss and, and like we talked earlier, they, they were just decent, decent, innocent people. And, and that hurts, you know, you know, um, sometimes people get in trouble because they ask for trouble, but these people didn't ask for trouble. They were just living their life, you know? So it could be your, your friend or your spouse or, or my mom uh, that's driving down the street. And so I, I think as a, as a department, we know that that kind of randomness is, is scary for us. Uh, that That's hard for us to interdict. Um, and although I feel, and I do very responsible that three of my citizens were killed under these circumstances, there's also an element of, you know, but man, what, what are we going to do about that? You know, and, and I think, you know, at my level, I, it's one thing I have more control and maybe can impact things, but just at your line level officer, I, I think there's a sense of, holy cow, you know, this is very random and, and that's going to be, that's going to be a hard one for just a line level officer to stop. Along those lines, some of those neighbors who either dodged bullets while driving by or walking, one older gentleman really sticks out in my mind. I don't think I'll soon forget seeing him on video pointing the responding officer toward the gunman in the street. I'm at Dustin and Navajo. Be advised, this guy is right in front of the church. I see him. Get behind the car, sir. I'm going home. Get behind the car now. I'm going home. Good. You know, this is terrifying and I'm sure also traumatizing for those community members as well. Have you heard from any of those citizens and what are conversations, interactions like that you're having with the public? That's another good question. You know, we really haven't that I know of, at, at least up to my level. But Saturday, um, the mayor, the city council and I are planning and going down to that neighborhood, uh, taking our command van down there. We've got resource guides that we're, we're putting up and just going door to door, you know, to t- kind of talk with them. It was bad enough I was out of town at the time it happens. I, I want them to see me um, in their neighborhood and and talk with me and let me hear their concerns and then give them some resources. Uh, to help them move past it because it, it it's traumatic for our community, but it was heightened that trauma right there. People saw people getting shot, which isn't something your average citizen sees, uh, and certainly not right in front of their house on just a quiet day. So, 
you know, I, I don't think we've heard much, but we are going to do some outreach to try and give them a voice. You know, probably through the course of last week, when I went to the uh, couple of graduations I went to, I did have people that came up. I live right in that area, or or I I was going to drive through that area to, and you know, I'm so appreciative. So there was a lot of community support that way, uh, and so maybe I had heard from more people than I even think I did. But we will we will definitely make a, a designed outreach Saturday to to have more conversation. It is not always clear, maybe how something like this could be prevented. Obviously, there's still a lot of uh, investigation happening right now, but just to ask you that question, though, and perhaps you have some ideas of, of maybe what you would like to see in the aftermath of all of this. Is it is it maybe better resources for youth? Is it parents safeguarding weapons, um, legislation addressing assault weapons? Is there anything on your mind that you can see or identify in, in general, I want, I do want greater accountability on firearms. You know, so we are a more conservative county and I'm, I support the second amendment as, as every police department should, right? It's, it's the law of the land. Um, but there's responsible gun ownership, right? And so they, it's not something you just talk about. It actually is important. And, and so th- that's even when, when people don't secure guns and those guns get stolen. Uh, you know, by by others. Yes, you're a victim, but but we also know this is a targeted crime, right? People want guns and, and not for good reasons. As far as mental health, it is something I've been talking about for quite a while. It's something with the Chiefs Association we've even had as one of our resolutions continuing on that the state invest more in mental health and giving police departments who are dealing with subjects in crisis someplace we can put folks you know, until they get through the crisis, you know, greater assistance in this. And and I will tell you that is definitely something that is a concern for me here in New Mexico. There, there are not a lot of services in that area to help police deal with folks that we're dealing with in crisis. And I think some of what you you said earlier, too, is um, there, there could be a variety of responses, but but it's the combination of, of mental health and of taking responsibility for guns. Whether there's legislation or something like that, you know, I, I think my job as chief isn't to get into the politics of that as much as, you know, let's look at what the proposals are. And I'll give you my opinion then uh, when you're talking about a specific bill. Do I think this is going to be effective? Do I think it's enforceable? Do I think it's it's something that we need? I, I certainly would weigh in on, on specific bills. Just in general, what the tempo is of, of whether or not we're going to do more gun control laws. You know, I'll probably sit back and let the legislature decide that and the governor. Just to clarify, though, in this shooting, as far as we understand it, Wilson, the weapons that he used, none of them were acquired illegally, correct? Correct. No, that's correct. You know, some of it goes to Chris's question. If if Mr. Wilson had, had mental problems that we knew about as a family, you know, let's make sure those guns are locked up. Let's make sure they're not accessible, uh, that he doesn't have that ability to get to them. Uh, so much ammunition, you know, 1,400 rounds of ammunition. I don't mind us having ammunition. I understand people like guns, people use ammunition for a variety of things. But when you see other other indicators that there could be trouble, uh, you know, I, I would urge folks to lock up their ammo. And we do get some of those calls when, uh, when people have either someone that's starting to suffer from dementia or uh, a spouse died and had a lot of guns, we will get calls from uh, from spouses that want us to come out and, and help secure those. 
you know, what I'm, what I'm saying is we need to probably do some more of that before it gets to that extreme. Chief, is there anything else that you'd like to add that we didn't ask you about or any message that you wanted to convey to the community? Something like this is so traumatic on, right? I mean, we had 10 people shot. I mean, that just doesn't happen in a community our size. Um, so it's emotional. It's, um, it's hard to predict. The randomness of it makes it difficult to predict. I, I know people like answers, and generally we like them to be black and white. But life's a lot of times not black and white. You know, it, it really is gray. Um, so even like this day, it was it was a terrible day, but our officers ultimately, you know, did just a great job ending it. Um, in this case, there's there's not a lot of people to blame. There's just you know a deep sorrow that that this happened in Farmington, and I think I think our community feels that, and there there aren't you know there aren't people to blame. There are there isn't. There isn't a ready-made, I'll tell you this, there isn't a ready-made answer for Chris's question. What what can I do to prevent it forever? I wish I had that. You know, I'd, I'd be having my own podcast and, and writing books. Uh, there just isn't that. There's Nobody has a perfect answer that's going to fix this whole thing. Uh, but it does go to our, our sense of community, our sense of responsibility, our commitment to, to mental health care. And then ultimately, when we have these, you know, the we've got to search and try and figure out what happened in, in this event but in general as communities you know we have to be taking accountability for um we have a lot of these in our country and we've got to be having conversations about how we can make this stop well chief heavy we appreciate you joining us here for this conversation thanks for being a part of helping share that narrative out there and um, answer our questions we appreciate it sure well i i, I appreciate the media on this we did try and then give information based on what you guys were were relaying what your what your readers were were interested in so so i appreciate how much time you guys spent on this it is an important event for us and and i i thank you Thanks again to Chief Hebby for taking the time to talk with us. He has been very open since the shooting unfolded with giving the public regular updates, it seems like, with the investigation and trying to get to that answer of why, if possible. We appreciate you joining us here for this week's episode. You can reach me at Chris McKee TV on social media and also chris.mckee at krqe.com. And you can reach me at gabrielle.burkhardt at krqe.com via email and gburk and I'm on social media. Thank you all for listening.